Very few dates in the history of Western civilization stand out as important landmarks or watersheds from which historians can draw great significance. One date, however, that stands out and is such a date of significance for historians is the year 1453. For it was in that year that the great fortress city of Constantinople fell to the Turks. This was an event which would change the course of history for mankind. This excursion in history now explores the events which led to the downfall of the city of Constantinople and the effects which came about because of that historic incident. Let us begin this excursion in history in the 7th century Anno Domini. Two great eastern empires, mighty Persia and the Byzantine, which used to be the eastern Roman Empire, have completely exhausted themselves through countless wars and have become vacuums ready to be filled by any strong society. In the year 622, there was a new religion born. The followers of the prophet Muhammad started a new religion which even to this day affects the lives of over one-fourth of the people of the world. It was called the Muslim religion. After the birth of the new religion, it was spread by the followers of the prophet by what was called jihads or holy wars. If one died spreading the true religion, he would be greeted by Muhammad himself when he got to paradise. So began a death struggle for the Byzantine Empire against the Turks. It was a struggle that would last some 800 years. It saw the Crusades take place and finished with the annihilation of the Byzantine Empire itself. The city of Constantinople came into being right after Xerxes had invaded the Greek world about 330 B.C. Once Xerxes was repelled, across the narrow straits which separate Asia Minor from Greece, the Greeks began building the mighty fortress city of Byzantium. Over the centuries it grew, and it was finally taken over by the Romans. And during the reign of Constantine the Great, the city was renamed after him, and it became known as Constantinople. Today, the same city is known as Istanbul. By the year 1400, Constantinople had fallen heir to the civilizations of both the ancient Greeks and the Roman empires. The city of Constantinople preserved the records of history of both empires as well as the classic works of the great thinkers and the laws of Rome. All through the Dark Ages, these great works were kept from being destroyed until Western civilization rediscovered them during the Renaissance. The walls of the great city of Constantinople had shielded Europe for thousands of years against every threat from the East, whether it was pagan or Muslim. After the fall of Persia and the rise of the prophet Muhammad, a new power arose in Asia. This new power was the Ottoman Turk. They had been converted to the true religion and decided to convert every last infidel to their religion 
or kill them. The Ottoman Turk even killed off his brother Seljuk Turks, who lived near the city of Constantinople, because they felt that they were backsliders, that they were not trying hard enough to spread the true religion. The Ottoman Turk gradually overran all the great Grecian Empire until by the year 1400, the city of Constantinople was virtually all that was left of the once great Byzantine Empire. The Ottoman Turks were continually at the doorsteps of Constantinople, but they were never quite able to conquer the city because of its mighty walls. It became the dream of every great sultan of Turkey to smash and conquer that city. In 1451, a new leader took over the Ottoman Empire. The new sultan's name was Mohammed II. He was only 22 years of age at the time of his accession to the throne. He was a powerful and arresting figure. He was handsome, cruel, and hardened by the intrigues of his father. But it was his brutality and ruthlessness that earned him the nickname of the Drinker of Blood. Yet, he was an intelligent man and a lover of fine arts. He had read about the feats and exploits of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, and he too dreamed of gaining a reputation that would win for him a place in history beside Caesar and Alexander as a conqueror of men. Now as ruler of the Ottoman Turks, he immediately gave himself to the long-cherished project of conquering the city. As far as his military affairs and strategy went, Mohammed II relied on numbers rather than skill to obtain his conquest. He commanded his own armies and lived the dream of war. Since the advent of gunpowder into the Western world, he had become a great supporter of artillery and was one of the first men in history to use artillery to its fullest advantage. The Greeks had nothing to match this artillery except the walls of Constantinople, which surrounded the city. The last emperor of the Greeks in Constantinople was Constantine XI. He became emperor after his brother John VI had died in 1448. His brother before him had done nothing during his reign except to try to keep the status quo with the Turks. He paid tribute to the Turks and agreed to a union of the Eastern Orthodox Church with the Roman Catholic Church in the West at the Council of Florence in 1439. His reason for the union of the churches was to gain aid from Western Europe in his fight against the Turks. And like his brother, Constantine looked to Western Europe for help. But any real help from Western Europe seemed doomed because of the conflicting interests and ambitions among the Western rulers. As far as they were concerned, Constantinople was merely a pawn in the political moves of Western Europe. Only the cities of Venice, Genoa, and the Pope of Rome offered any assistance at all. Venice and Genoa offered aid because their trade routes to the Orient were in jeopardy, and the Pope offered aid because of the union of the church, which was reaffirmed. In planning to take Constantinople,
Mohammed's first move was to confirm the treaty his father had made with Constantine many years before and profess to Constantine his peaceful intentions. But as one person said, peace was on his lips, but war was in his heart. Mohammed's first offensive move was to land a force of soldiers and workmen north of Constantinople, and there he built a castle in which to keep his troops for his projected siege. The name of this strong castle he built was known as Romali Hassar, or as the Greeks called it, Cutthroat Castle. The castle, Romali Hassar, which was built near the Bosporus Straits, controlled those straits with its cannon fire and cut Constantinople off from its source of grain and food supply from the Black Sea area. When Constantine learned of the existence of this castle, he decided that perhaps he had better close the gates of the mighty city as a precaution. Upon hearing that Constantine had closed the gates of the city, Mohammed declared war on the city on June 21, 1452. The Sultan next appeared before the city at the head of a large force of some 50,000 men, and after looking over the situation, withdrew to a place called Adrianople, where he completed his preparations for his onslaught. Within a few months, the Sultan had amassed an army of between 200 and 250,000 men. Just how many men the Sultan had exactly is not known, but one thing that everybody agrees on is that his army was huge. About 110,000 men were effective soldiers. The rest of the Sultan's army was made up of thieves and plunderers who were after the riches of the city. Mohammed's army was composed of three types of soldiers. The first group was called the Janissaries. They were the Sultan's most effective men and the most efficient body of the entire Turkish army. The Sultan, over many years, had built this army of professional soldiers from what was called a blood tax. The blood tax was where the Sultan's provinces were required each year to supply a quota of young, strong, and intelligent boys who would be trained in the arts of warfare. The second body of the Sultan's army was called the Anatolians. They were good fighters who hoped someday to be good enough to become Janissaries. The last group was made up of peddlers, merchants, cutthroats, rogues of every sort, slaves, servants, camp followers, religious fanatics, and undisciplined rabble. They were called the Basha Bazooks. But the most important thing to Mohammed was his artillery. He had 13 of the greatest bombarding weapons in the world and 51 lesser guns at his disposal. His greatest piece was a monstrous thing which had a barrel that was 96 inches in circumference. The weapon fired huge stones which weighed about 1,500 pounds each, and since it took about two hours to load the cannon, it could be fired only eight times per day. This cannon went by the name of Royal, and according to the custom of the day, it was set up just outside bowshot from the city's walls. The Turks also had a large inefficient fleet of about 145 ships. To hold back this formidable array of forces, 
Constantine had some 8,000 men and a few ships. He had about 3,000 foreigners, most Genoese and Venetians, who were loyal to him and were willing to fight. Out of the 100,000 people living in the city itself, about 25,000 were of military age, and of this 25,000, the emperor was only able to get 5,000 to answer his plea for help. Yet, despite this cowardly showing, the emperor would heroically defend his city. Indeed, it would be a death struggle to the end. Constantine wished he had more men with which to fight his opponent. Oddly enough, fate was kind to him, for a man by the name of John Guestiniani arrived in Constantinople with some 700 well-armed men in two large ships. Constantine immediately made this fighter his commander-in-chief in charge of the forces defending the city, and he had all but dictatorial powers. The greatest weapon that the defenders of the city were relying on was the city's century-old walls, which completely encircled the city. Then, too, there was an enormous chain boom, reinforced by immense bulks of wood. They guarded Constantinople's harbor, which was known as the Golden Horn. The Great Wall, which had kept Constantinople safe for centuries from would-be conquerors, was composed of three sections. There was the Land Wall of Theodosius II, which was built in the 5th century. It stretched for four miles from the Sea of Mamara to the Golden Horn Harbor, and it cut Constantinople off from the mainland. The two other walls were the sea wall, which ran alongside the Golden Horn for some three and one-half miles, and the sea wall, which ran along the Sea of Mamara for five and one-half miles. The Theodosius land wall was itself composed of two walls and had a breastworks before it. Furthermore, before the breastworks, there was a ditch, 60 feet broad and 15 feet deep. The outer wall was 25 feet high, with towers rising to 50 feet. The Theodosian wall was 40 feet high and had towers of massive size and strength that rose to 60 feet. Mohammed began his siege of Constantinople on April 7, 1453. He divided his troops into four groups and dispersed them around the walls. He concentrated his best troops at the St. Romanus Gate, and it was here that the main attack would take place. Once Constantine saw where the blow was to be made, he would concentrate his forces there and usually repel his attackers. But to do this, soldiers from other parts of the wall had to be spread thin. Many times there would be only a squad of three or four men manning a single tower. Mohammed ordered his great cannon to be moved closer to the walls and to fire at will. Now, with his artillery moved up, one of the first great organized bombardments in history commenced. It was an extremely slow affair as it took about two hours to reload the cannon. When the mighty cannon belched its flame and its huge 1,500-pound rock at the walls of Constantinople, the ancient walls would shudder and crack from the impact. But because it took so long to reload the cannon, 
the citizens of the city had time to patch up the walls as rapidly as they were destroyed. The walls were repaired by using mud and tombstones from the adjacent graveyards. These tombstones would be embedded into the fabric of the wall, and mud and mortar was splashed around them. These repairs seemed to make the wall stronger and more resistant to other shots which were poured into the wall as the new earth absorbed and buried the balls in the wall itself. The weaponry used by both sides included muskets, crossbows, catapults, swords, arrows, lances, and javelins. The Turks were relentless antagonists. They watched the walls continually for a chance to scale some unguarded area and break into the city. Finally, on the 18th of April, Muhammad, who was becoming impatient, ordered a general assault on the walls and the harbor. The Turks rushed forward to the walls, yelling, To the sack! To the sack! The defenders returned the rush with a terrific fire of handguns, wall guns which fired ten lead balls at once, bows, crossbows, and catapults. After four hours of fighting, the onslaught of the Turks was swept back. Meanwhile, the Turkish navy found that it could do nothing against the Greeks because of the chain boom at the mouth of the Golden Horn. Two days after the first repulse, Constantine received word that four large Genoese warships with troops and munitions were sailing to Constantinople. On the way to the city, they met and picked up a large ship laden with grain. When Mohammed learned of these ships, he immediately dispatched 150 Turkish galleys to destroy them. The four ships, however, were strong and sturdy. These heavy Christian ships, with their high forecastles and poop decks, rammed and smashed the first Turkish vessels that attacked them. At one point, when the wind gave out on the seas and they became calm, it looked bad for the Christians. But they used their heads, tied their ships together, and made a floating fortress. As the Turks tried to rush up on the sides of the ships, the Genoese fought them off with axes, rocks, pots of Greek fire, darts, and anything else they could lay their hands on. The Genoese fought back every effort made by the Turks to board their vessels. About sundown, a south wind sprung up, and the ships made their way through the Golden Horn to safety. Mohammed was furious. At first he was determined to cut off the head of his commander for allowing this to happen. But as his rage moderated, instead of killing the man, he just had his men beat him senseless with heavy sticks. The Turks were at their lowest point, repulsed everywhere, and now being humiliated by a mere handful of Christian sailors. Perhaps they should give it up as a bad deal and let it go at that. But Muhammad was still confident he could smash the city. So he tried to storm the walls, this time with an immense wooden tower which the Turks had built. The tower was dragged up to the ditch. Once the tower was close to the walls, the men inside began firing on the Greeks manning their walls. The Greeks responded by floating barrels of gunpowder across the ditch with fuses burning. As they reached the base of the Turks' wooden tower, they exploded and another effort of Muhammad's was frustrated. Muhammad now felt that if he couldn't go over the walls, maybe he could go under them. So he ordered his men to start tunneling. 
From May 15th to May 25th, various attempts were made to get under the walls, but each time the Turks were turned back as the Greeks countermined the tunnels, blew up the miners, and then suffocated whoever was left with smoke pots. At other times, the Greeks would blow holes in the tunnels and allow water to trap and drown the Turks within. Little by little, the Turks began losing heart because of their repeated failures. The Sultan himself called for a council of war to decide whether or not to abandon his siege. But his viziers urged him to have another go at it, and a new plan of attack was worked out. First, Muhammad felt he must get control of the Golden Horn Harbor. The harbor was important because if he controlled it, he could then threaten the northern seawall and further disperse the defending forces. Since he could not get past the great chain boom, he decided to bypass it. The only way he could do this would be to move his ships overland. He would have to transport part of his fleet across one mile of land from the Bosporus Straits to the inner part of the Golden Horn Harbor. So a runway was built and greased, and 72 ships were dragged across the land and into the harbor. At night, the Greeks tried to attack and set fire to the ships, but their efforts failed. Now that he controlled the harbor, his great plan of attack was that his fleet should pin down the defenders on both seawalls and prevent them from reinforcing the land wall. Three sections of the land wall in the meantime would be attacked with the St. Romanus Gate becoming the focal point of the attack. Furthermore, the attack was to be carried out day and night without a pause. Fresh troops would be brought in day after day until the defenders were worn out to the point where they could no longer defend themselves or the city. The brave garrisons defending Constantinople now numbered barely 4,000 fighting men. Constantine XI, however, kept his dignity. On May 28th, he held the last religious services in the beautiful church of San Sophia. Here, he gave a stirring speech and revived the hopes that the city might be saved. Gradually, the great church emptied and the men returned to their positions on the wall. No Christian service was ever held in the church of St. Sophia again, not even to this very day. On the 28th of May, 1453, Mohammed's army was in readiness and he ordered the attack on the great city. He had arranged a large collection of ladders and iron hooks to pull down the barricades built by the defenders to hold back his assaults. Furthermore, he amassed great quantities of dirt and rocks to fill the ditches for crossing. The first assault wave to hit the defenders of the city would be the Basha Bazooks. Mohammed's plan was to have the rabble of his army exhaust the defenders of Constantinople, deplete their ammunition, and then have his crack troops, the Janissaries, gain the wall. In the meantime, the great cannon, Royal, which has been quiet for a long time because it was cracked under its own concussion, was repaired and returned to service. All that day, the attack continued, with wave after wave of Turks being repulsed. For the defenders, they fought with no chance of escape. The attacks of the Basha Bazooks were met with a rain of stones, javelins, arrows, bullets, and Greek fire. 
The Greeks defended themselves so well that the rabble began to retreat. But much to the surprise of the Basha Bazooks, they found they could not retreat, for the Sultan had ordered his troops to kill any coward that did not die fighting the Greeks. Armed with maces and lead-weighted whips, the regular troops of the Sultan lashed the Basha Bazooks and made them attack the Christians again and again, thus exhausting the defenders and absorbing their weapons. After several hours, the remnants of the Basha Bazooks were allowed to retreat. Now the Anatolians advanced, and the real work to bring down the city began. The Anatolians flung their ladders against the palisades and began climbing toward the top of the wall. But much to their surprise, they found out that the Christians were still very much in the fight as they were hurled down into the pits along with their ladders. The fight continued on into the night as the Turks built huge fires around the city until it was surrounded by a glowing light. Finally, as daylight came on the morning of the 29th, Mohammed withdrew his Anatolians and he himself led his Janissaries to the attack who rushed the walls like lions. There was a savage battle with neither side gaining any advantage. Then the defenders slowly began to push the Janissaries back away from the wall until all seemed well. But every time things seemed well, the Turks would attack again, and again the defenders would push them back. During this heavy fighting, a minor incident occurred which led to the fall of the city. A small gate, known in the distant past as the Circus Gate, and which for centuries had been sealed shut, was breached. Unfortunately, this went unnoticed by the defenders of the city. Fifty Turks were able to slip through the gate, flank the defenders, make their way to the main tower, where the flag of St. Mark flew over the city, and there they hoisted their own standard. The Greeks regained the wall, cut off the escape of the Turks, and it seemed that the emergency was over. In the meantime, the Sultan had been driven back with his Janissaries four times. On the fourth assault, however, the defenders lost their leader, John Guestiniani, who was hit by a projectile. Bleeding profusely, he withdrew inside the inner wall. With their leader gone, the morale of the men fell and confusion started. The Turks, who were trapped within the city and could not escape, now crept along the wall until they came to the St. Romanus Gate. Defenders, seeing Turks at their rear and a Turkish flag flying over the main tower, thought that the city had been taken, and they broke and ran in confusion. Mohammed, seeing the confusion, ordered his men on to a final attack and offered them three days of plunder if they took the city. It was this final fierce attack that carried the walls. Now the Turks poured into the city. Constantine, seeing the defenders fall back, rushed on the Turks, sword in hand, yelling, God forgive that I should live an emperor without an empire. As my city falls, I will fall with it. A moment later, the last emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire was cut down. Panic now swept the city as the Turks rushed in, killing and plundering. Some people were tortured to death while others had their heads lopped off with scimitars. Those who could be sold for ransom and those who would bring a price at some slave market were saved. All others were killed. The aged, 
sick and unsaleable were butchered. Pregnant women or women with children at their breasts who could not stand the long journey to the slave markets were likewise killed. So many heads were cut off that one observer noted that they floated like so many melons in the harbor of the Golden Horn. Other women were raped. Indeed, the Turks had their three days of plunder of the city and then some. The works of the Greek, Roman, and Byzantine empires were undone in a day. The entire precious library of the city, which included the works of Plato, Aristotle, and every other great thinker that had been preserved, were used to start fires, sold for a few pennies, or thrown into the streets where they were walked upon. It was a sad day for all humanity forevermore to lose these irreplaceable works of literature, art, and culture. With the fall of Constantinople came great repercussions. Europeans now awoke to the great threat that the Turks had become to Europe. With the fall of the great city, the door to Eastern Europe was now wide open, and the Turks had provided themselves the bridgehead they needed to gain what European possessions they might desire. So ended the story of the ancient civilizations of the Greek, Roman, and Byzantine empires, which at one time embraced the entire Western world within its realm, and which was one of the chief centers of the world's thought and culture for well over 1,000 years. But if one civilization dies, another will be born to take its place, and that is what happened in this case. Perhaps the most significant thing to come out of the fact that the Turks now control the city of Constantinople was the fact that all trade with the great culture of the Orient, Cathay, or China, was now stopped. It ceased completely. Since the Crusades, most of Europe had depended on Eastern trade for their livelihood. Now, with no trade routes open to the Orient, Europe faced hard times. Their only hope in solving this problem was to find, if possible, another route to the Orient. Furthermore, this new trade route would have to be a route which would not go through or near the territories of the Moslems. During the next few years, Europeans began seeking this new route to the Orient. Eventually, a young adventurer by the name of Christopher Columbus will convince the rulers of Spain that by sailing west, one could discover China. He felt that the world was round and not flat. Given the opportunity to prove his idea, he sailed west from Palos, Spain on August the 3rd, 1492. And a few months later, in October of 1492, he discovered something which would prove to be more important than China to Western civilization, as he discovered a new world. And so we bring to an end this excursion in history, this story which changed the course of history and the destiny of mankind. The simple fact of the matter is that the fall of Constantinople in 1453 led to the discovery of the new world where a new way of life and a new civilization began.